0: It's
1: the ricochet effect, ricochet
0: effect, like ricochet effect. Yeah, yeah. We have a conversation with no moderation. Love to the communities, the ricochet effect. Have a conversation with no moderation. Love to the communities, the ricochet effect. Have no a conversation with no
2: moderation. Hi,
3: this is Renee Cobb, and I'm Dr. Abini El Amin, and we are with the ricochet effect.
2: Hi I'm Renee Collins-Cobb, co-host of the Ricochet Effect Podcast. This podcast is presented by Project Ricochet, a 501 C3 nonprofit organization that focuses its efforts on empowering communities by paving the way to positive life choices. The podcast is also a vehicle to present information in a diverse, equitable, inclusive way that creates and manifests a sense of belonging. And a lot of organizations have assigned an acronym that has a long phrase that connects four very important concepts, and that is DEIB. Our founder and co-host has been quoted recently in the news as stating, DEIB is the DNA of humanity. And today on The Ricochet Effect, we have a couple of guests that will speak to DEIB and humanity as we talk about the challenging issue of domestic violence and abuse. We have two guests who are going to speak to first what this issue is versus what a lot of people think it is. And they're going to share their experiences and backstories, how it affects humanity, and what happens if it's not addressed, as some say, as well as strategies to help anyone that is living in an abusive situation or knows anyone that may need help in leaving an abusive situation. First, we have Tanisha Ash-Shakor, J.D. She's an advocate, survivor, expert witness, community leader, and founder and CEO of the nonprofit organization Voices of Color in Lansing, Michigan. And we have Darlene Thomas, MSSW, from another nonprofit organization here in Lexington called Greenhouse 17. She's the executive director who leads a management team that brings more than 100 years of combined experience in the mission to end intimate partner abuse. To both of you, welcome to the Ricochet Effect. Tanisha, if you wouldn't mind, please talk to us first about your backstory and how your nonprofit organization came to be and serve people in Michigan that are experiencing life under the darkness of domestic violence and abuse. How much time do I have? <laughs> um,
0: so the backstory is after I graduated from undergrad, um, I attended North Carolina Central University in Durham, North Carolina. There was an individual that I was involved with during my time in undergrad. After I graduated, we sort of lost contact for about a mm-hmm. year. And he reached back out to me where he just felt like he needed some support, had some family situations happening. And so this person um, I allowed to move in with me. Um, I was getting in my first apartment. And we decided about two months after him moving in that we would become an official relationship. And from there, that relationship just, changed drastically I didn't I can say hindsight now I did not realize initially what was you know what was that first thing that I should have recognized um, I can say now I remember him saying to me you know I was the biggest girl he had ever been with while at that moment for some reason I got excited about that thinking I'm just a thick and I could you know use that as some supportive affirmation of my body right but I realized later how that did something to my psyche, about how I really felt about my body, my weight, everything. And from there, the abuse just went from one thing to another, till it was, you know, the mental, the emotional, the verbal abuse. Then the physical abuse started until then the sexual abuse, and I was being raped by him. And the last incident that took place was him holding me in a room for over three plus hours indicating he was going to murder me that night. And he actually made contact with his mom and his parents to notify everyone that he was going to murder me. So from there, um, eventually I'm here now to obviously share my story and to do, I had no idea that domestic violence was going to be the work. I knew I wanted to be an attorney. So thereafter, probably about four or five years later, I enrolled in law school, realized in law school, Yeah, these are future attorneys who have no idea, no understanding of the concept of domestic violence. And they're going to be advocating for people and they don't understand it. And so my job essentially was to make sure that I wanted there to be education and I didn't want it to be textbook. So that's what I did. I started my domestic violence nonprofit Voices of Color after so that I could be that voice for the voiceless.
2: Thank you. And Darlene, we had a wonderful discussion earlier this week as I got to visit you and your staff at Greenhouse 17. And I thank you so much for that. Um, what can you share with our listeners about how after being a high school basketball player in Kentucky, you entered the career field that you have entered and speak to the formation of Greenhouse
1: 17? Well, that's an interesting background. Where did you find that? Um, yes. Well, I, honestly, it was probably basketball that took me to college. Um, so I was on a small college basketball team. Um, and it was during that time that I became super interested in uh, women and minority studies. You know, we all have a story. We all have our own experiences. I, I don't know hardly any female I've ever met in my life that hasn't... Um, that does not have a story of harm or trauma that's been done to them and their bodies. So in that work, uh, I just seemed to fit who I was, wanted to be, who I wanted to become. Uh, it was probably about my own growth, personal growth and experiences. And then right out of college, I needed a job, like a lot of people, right? <laughs> uh, and I feel very uh, blessed to have been able to even go to college, right? And, uh, but I did need a job. And uh, they were hiring at a spouse abuse center, and that was in Owensboro, Kentucky, and the name of the program was Oasis, and I was a baby. And for some reason, um, the assistant director there saw something in me and hired me as this baby, Um, and really, I should probably go and apologize to the first 50, 100 survivors that I served, because they served me way more than I ever served them, and that's true today. That stands true today for me and my world. So... Um, from that uh, you know you just kind of I grew up in this work it's what I've done I've had amazing mentors and teachers uh, but the most amazing mentors and teachers I've had are the survivors Um, which has led me to Louisville um, for many years at the Center for Women and Families and then uh, came in 2004 to start Greenhouse 17 uh, and I've been the only director and actually today December 1st is my um 19th year at greenhouse 17 so we're 19 years old um so greenhouse 17 just kind of um has been this a beautiful program that was developed and designed really by a whole host of people that i'm really good at one thing and that's hiring amazingly smart people who make me look good all the time so um part i think of um modeling and mentoring to the survivors that we're serving is how do you create this energy that survivors always have a part of what what our work is, what it looks like, uh, and so in our program their voices are loud and strong, sometimes so strong that it exhausts me. Um, <laughs> but it's always a good thing because we wouldn't be who we are and so i really proud of where we are at Greenhouse 17 which we can talk about later but mostly just proud of the courage of survivors to even decide to pick up themselves and their children and find themselves in a shelter with 45 other traumatized individuals who all have different backgrounds and stories and um, uncertainties. And it creates this beautiful, um, complex learning how to relearn relationships because they've been so damaged. So that's just a little bit of... And we're going to
2: unpack that even more. Yes. I'm happy to. Uh, I'm just so grateful that both of you all are here today. Yeah, absolutely. Tanisha and I met uh, probably under circumstances that most people do not, (laughs) (laughs) and that was actually in Hollywood, California, and both of us were named Next Star Media Group Remarkable Women in our market areas of Kentucky and Michigan, and Remarkable Woman, Tanisha, was actually one of the seven finalists out of the 112 that were there that weekend, and This nationwide initiative honors women and the influence that they have on public policy, social progress, and the quality of life, and celebrates local women that inspire, lead, and forge the way for other women. And when we were seated at the Chinese Theater, which is when they revealed who the seven finalists were, the announcement came, I listened to Tanisha's story, and I became overwhelmed with tears. And as a survivor myself, of domestic abuse and feeling like for the first time someone had articulated in the words the range of emotions and resolve that I felt at that time in my life as well and I immediately sought her out in the elevator of Madame Tessard's (laughs) wax museum (laughs) and found out more about her journey. So I'll say that we met under circumstances probably most people didn't but Uh, Darling, just to let you know, she spoke eight words in that video segment that they made that really, in essence, changed the trajectory of my whole own life and even being out of my experience for probably about seven or eight years. And that brought the camera right up to my face, by the way, because they, they must have found that very compelling. So while they're doing her story, I'm appearing on national TV just sobbing. I would say that this did take me in the direction and the character in my own life story. And those words were these eight words. I didn't survive to sit on my story. And it's my goal that, yes, and it's my goal that no one ever feels like they have to sit on their story. So here we are today to give you some very compelling reasons on why you shouldn't sit on your story either. Um, Tanisha, what do you have to add to that? Mm.
0: When I, you know, I, I I guess I say I'm always speechless when I think about that because to survive when, you know, you you know the the impact of working with the clients um and those we serve there's so many levels, so much to unpack when you are going and have or will or what have you, to experience domestic violence. And so I just knew what I didn't receive when I was going through domestic violence. I knew what I wanted to receive. I knew that a lot of people around me did not understand what I was going through. I knew there was a lot of judgment, a lot of shame and embarrassment that is associated with it. And I also knew, but every day I walked out of my house, with this image of strength, that my community had no idea what I was experiencing. And how did I balance two worlds and hide all of this for so long? Um, So when I think about saying I survived, you know, I know I survived so I didn't have to sit on my story because many don't make it out. You know, being held in a room and being told you're going to be murdered. But to be here today, that wasn't by chance. It wasn't by coincidence. And glory to God, I am I'm, I'm so thankful for that. And I knew all too well how I felt. And I never wanted someone to go through, if I had anything to do with it, they would not have to go through what they went through. They would not have to do it alone. They wouldn't have to feel any judgment. And I would meet them where they were. So if that meant I'm not ready to leave, I can meet you where you are and keep you safe as possible where you are. Um, And so I think that that's so critical that we give victims and survivors their own voice in whatever shape, form, or fashion, even if we don't agree with it, they're entitled to that.
2: So, Tanisha, you speak of two worlds. And darling, what I'd like to ask mm. you is, what's the mainstream perception of who is affected most by domestic violence versus who is actually <laughs> affected <laughs> by Boy, domestic violence? there's a lot of violence.
1: myths and beliefs out there about what a survivor looks like um, or a domestic violence victim at, you know, during that time. Uh, I tell you, most people would say they're poor, with limited resources, um, young, I think there's a perception that most victims are young, uh, that there's often children involved, um, not educated. Um, I, th- I mean, that's pretty much it. That's kind of the picture of what they'll do. Uh, and unfortunately, that's so far from the truth in <laughs> the reality for the vast majority of survivors out there. Um, but we get these pictures in our head, right? Mm-hmm. And we also have pictures of what those that do harm look like, too. And that's inaccurate, Right, that would be the um, tank top wearing cowboy boot. With n- nothing personal against you know cowboy boots <laughs> at all. I have several <laughs> pair myself. But you know we we have this picture in our head of what these bad guys look like: criminal histories, you know, repeated trouble with the law, all these things. And not that some of those individuals don't perpetrate their partners, but the vast majority have very little to no criminal record. Um, And just, uh, yeah, it's more private and personal, and it's very manipulative and coercive. And so lots of people think, oh, this person would never be abusive. And unfortunately, our courts often have that response. We know what it looks like, so the court thinks it knows what it looks like. And then you have uh, sometimes law enforcement has an idea of what this is going to look like or so it, we have to unravel, and not setting on your story helps us unravel the myths uh, so that people can get that picture. Back in the day, we used to put up, like, I don't know, 10 pictures of survivors, and I'd go out in the community, and I would go, which one is the survivor? And nobody could ever pick out the right person, ever. Were they uh, correct because we have these visions in our head? So we have to undo that, and the telling of stories um, breaks those those negative uh, or wrong thought patterns. Well, this is probably a long question, but let me see
2: if I can try to simplify it. But what would people who are not challenged in this way or don't experience domestic violence be surprised to find out that are not things we are thinking of when we think about accessibility for those who are victims of domestic violence? Um, so when I think about probably
0: things that people don't consider, um, when we talk about accessibility to understand that, um, and I'm going to unpack this of how I believe that you were asking that question. Um, when we speak of, you know, why don't people just go to shelters, right? Well, sometimes my marginalized communities, um, they don't receive resources equally. And so I have seen where Black and brown people have called shelters and they were told there were no spaces available. And then I would call right back and be the advocate and be able to get them a space. I think people oftentimes don't grasp that. Um, And I know the National uh, Coalition speaks about this as well, is that in a lot of uh, situations where the victim is, say, from the black community, they're oftentimes arrested along with their abuser versus in other populations that may not be the case where the abuser's are arrested and they're less likely to be believed from the time law enforcement is involved into the time they go before a judge. Um, I think in, in just people's in terms of you talk about accessibility, the getting out part, people, the main question, which is the wrong question is why don't they just leave? Well, where, is their, where are their jobs located? Do you have wraparound resources for them? So if they were to leave today, they have income because there's such thing as financial abuse. Do they have income? Do they have or can they afford child care? What does child care look like for them? You know, so there are so many resources that individuals need, whether it's related to their income Do they need therapy? Do they have health insurance, which we know is a huge issue across the country? How are they able to be able to get resources to better improve themselves when they're suffering from PTSD related to their trauma? And trauma brings on all these other health conditions, right? And so there's this idea that once you leave your abuser, the abuse stops. It does not. We often now talk about um, I do a lot of court advocacy, legal advocacy. There's the discussion now of legal abuse. People don't even recognize that there's legal abuse. So you, your abuser will file twenty thousand motions in court, and you have to appear. Not only do you have to appear, you're likely to lose your job then because how many, how oftentimes will you know your job? They may not even have a policy in place, right, for you to be able to take time off when it's related to domestic violence. So they're losing time off work, could lose their job. And so they use the system to continue to manipulate and to be able to see their victim. And I wanna make sure that I'm I'm saying victim because I always use it in different contexts, right? We know we are empowering survivors, but I think in certain certain when we're speaking in context, sometimes we have to say victim because in certain settings it is not as impactful. Or it is not understood unless you categorize it that way. And so I want to make clear that while we're empowering someone who has overcome domestic violence and we know that you have survived and been a survivor, we also use the term victim to explain the hurt and harm that has come upon someone. Darlene, what do you have to add to that? Oh, wow.
1: I, that, well, that's everything spot on. Of course, you, it, you it's your lived experience too, right? So there's a couple of things I think for me um one I think I would like the general community to know I think there's a perception of us and them like those people those victims and not that this not a loving caring community people but I need to say it's we it's all around us uh domestic violence does not discriminate and those that do harm absolutely manipulate as much of the community, the community members, their family members, the law enforcement and the courts as much as they do their partner. They are masters at what they do and so therefore the barriers are great. If it were as simple as leaving, we wouldn't have intimate partner violence and we definitely wouldn't need shelters if we could just leave when we're ready and walk away, but it doesn't work that way. Multiple barriers. survivors and it absolutely it's child care it's transportation it's housing it's affordable housing and it takes time you don't come out of violence and tomorrow kind of pick up everything and be able to take care of you and yourself i just heard a beautiful survivor yesterday and she was giving her testimony right about her lived experience And, and for her she goes i just want you to know it it's been 12 years I've just moved out of Section 8 housing, right? She needed 12 years to get her schooling that she wanted, and she is independent, able to do it. But it was 12 years because he kept dragging her back to court. He kept the abuse. So just because survivors leave doesn't mean abuse stops. So when we as a society go, get out, just leave, just leave, just leave, unfortunately. That doesn't stop the violence. And even if you leave, you're dealing often, especially if there's children involved, years of ongoing abuse, manipulation, financial. um, So it doesn't just end. And I think we, if I could just say one thing, the general community is our perception of what stops domestic violence is inaccurate. What stops domestic violence is the batterer who's doing the harm. And we as a society have to figure out how to hold them accountable. And we don't know how to do that yet. We have not figured that out in this country.
0: And if I could just add one thing, that, that last part that she just put out there is like the bonus to everything related. That this is, you know, whether it's family court, you know, everything is always about this is high conflict. This is, you know, two parents who can't get along. understand that abuse is related to one person taking and trying to control another It's not an equal playing field ever. On top of the fact, um, you said something. Oh, my gosh, I just forgot what I was going to say.
2: It may be related to this, so let me just kind of ask you, because one of the things that I learned from watching your film in Hollywood is another aspect which differentiates your nonprofit from a lot of other services is that you do not demand that your clients leave the situation. And when we hear this question, why don't they just leave? Why don't they just leave? So tell us about the way that Voices of Color goes about that. And more importantly, why do you take that approach? So that is where, my, where I was going. So
0: a lot of times people don't understand that when a victim is attempting to leave their abuser or they leave their abuser, that is the highest percentage in fact like a 75 percent increase in the likelihood of a homicide and suicide taking place and so while many say just leave just leave they don't realize that there's an increase in the likelihood of them being murdered and especially in the two-week time frame thereafter leaving and I think that that's a critical part that I've even trained and talked to CPS about because they want the mother to leave and to do better And I've had to tell them like, you realize without proper think protocols, resources in place, you could be the reason, you could be the cause or what gets them killed because they know their abusers better than anybody. And so with Voices of Color, the reason I say we don't tell our, no, we don't tell them to leave. Because, one, they know their abusers better than us. They know how their perpetrator moves, how they don't move. And nine times out of ten, we're getting a lot of information from them, but we're not getting everything to necessarily make a decision for them. And so our job is not to make a decision for them. Our job is to provide them with the education, about these are the resources, these are the tools, these are the things that are accessible to you if and when you're ready. And if you choose to use any of these resources, this is what that can look like. Because we work in a system where courts don't always favor, don't always favor the victim and survivor. So I constantly am reassuring them that, while you can go and take out a personal protection order, I have to ask you, is taking out this personal protection order, will that agitate, causing the, your perpetrator to be angry? Will they come after you? Are they, you know Because while we need that paper trail, we understand that many perpetrators could care less about that paper, right? But in some courts, without a PPO being the first thing they even initiated, they don't want to hear anything. The court judges don't even care, did you take out a personal protection order? As we know, there are issues with even taking out a personal protection order. But I say all that to say it has to be a conscious decision that the victim is, when they're ready and willing to do that, because we do risk their life or their children's lives when we're making a decision for them. And so I will attempt to safety plan if they want to stay with their abuser. We can create safety plans for them while they're in the home, just to keep them safe to maneuver in their world. And when they're ready, we have open door policy to assist them at that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, really, there should be no cookie cutter approach because humans don't come in approaches. And unfortunately, too many systems, um, including a lot of shelter systems, unfortunately. Um, So I want to be inclusive of all systems because we're, you know, even though that many of us try to remove ourselves from that. And we have to understand we are still, for survivor's perspective, a part of that system. So how it engages. But I will say far too many systems. Survivors have to meet the expectation of the system, not the system meeting the needs of the survivor. And so we have to allow people in their own journey, in their own time. They are the experts of their own lives. And they're on the learning curve. So many survivors don't even didn't know they were survivors for many years so they're coming to terms and grips until certain things have escalated that you go okay this isn't me anymore there's nothing I can do to fix it or make it better and usually by the time that happens such risk is at play to their safety and there's uncertainty to that risk and how to navigate it and the thing for all things and the one thing I can't tell you about intimate partner violence, there's, there might be more than one thing, but one thing for sure I can't tell you is which batters will kill and which ones will not. So for me, I treat every intimate partner violence situation as potentially lethal. Even if survivors minimize it for themselves, they have every right to, that's how they're surviving and coping in their world. But in my mind, I'm always thinking about safety, safety planning, planting seeds, giving grace, wrapping people just in love and time until they can start to trust their own judgments, their own opinions, and take those next steps forward. And that's trauma-informed. That's where we should look at, you know, down the road. And once you get from
2: victim status to try to transition into the survivor, Um, There's a lot of common therapies, right, that are engaged with victims who've been exposed to this type of violence um, for a very long time that may benefit the healing process. And I realized just personally at one point that I would not really ever be able to do this myself, (laughs) to rid myself of all these residual effects of exposure to domestic abuse over the course of 25 years. And after um, talking with therapist about general things I was diagnosed with PTSD and I personally saw a specialized therapist at that point but what I want to talk about is the modification that they put me on was through um, EMDR which I found to be very effective when one hears that term though PTSD what do you think people most commonly associate with
0: that you're crazy
2: yeah, that and <laughs> veterans, and veterans, you know, that have been exposed, right? You know, really, it's the same. It is. I'm going to be honest
1: with you. When I train law enforcement and different people, you, you're you a prisoner of war. It's just the yeah. war is your home. Um, and, and there's, we don't hold accountable prisoners of war for any behavior they have to do to survive. If they had to give up secrets, if they had to do whatever they need to do to protect other people in their troop. Yeah. Um, We don't blame them for that, because it's then about survival. You're a prisoner of war. You're being deprived of your dignity. You're being deprived of food, what you need to basically survive. And I'm telling you, most IPV, intimate partner violence relationships, are just like prisoners of war. Uh, Although they might get to walk out of their house. Trust me, walking out of that house is not a safety zone for any of them. So it's a false sense of safety. Um, And so we need to learn how to celebrate survivors like we celebrate, celebrate prisoners of war, which we should celebrate prisoners of war. By golly, celebrate survivors because it takes a lot to get through. Uh, and I just, that's a big aha,
2: I think, comment for me, darling, to really make that association. What are some of the costs involved when someone decides that they do not want to live this way any longer? And why does it cost so much to untie or... To divorce especially in states where mm-hmm. there's 50 50 type of distribution right and that it goes on in a very contested way can you repeat that question yes <laughs> what are some of the costs involved uh, that again society just does not think about right if you're not in the situation that it is very costly to get out of a situation where you are affected by domestic violence um whew. <laughs> There's a whole lot to that. Question. Yeah. I yeah. mean,
0: everyday life just, I mean, we think about, if you just think about COVID, everybody has some sense of what, how life took a toll on people during COVID and how people really started counting every single dollar. Right. So if you could place yourself there for a moment and imagine, let's just say whether there was financial abuse or not, because most of the time, whoever the victim is they're likely not the breadwinner in that relationship. More than likely, sometimes they're not. Sometimes they are or they're equal. However, if you're seeking a divorce or maybe you're not even married but children are involved, you're going from maybe a just this one income, trying to figure it all out, for everyday living, the cost of an attorney alone is outrageous. <laughs> I, um, the cost to continue to go to court, you know, I've seen some of my clients who within a year have spent well over $25,000. And that was just someone who was, had child support coming in, that they were able to use that in a way to help them. But, the most of the people don't are in, in, in general, whether it's DV or not, intimate partner violence or not, don't have an income in this day and time to be able to afford basic groceries. And so when you think about that and now we're talking about your daily living at an attorney cost, child care and anything else you can think of, just basic bills. It just costs. And if you have to relocate, that's another expense. And I think the problem becomes is because you don't anticipate the cost. So a lot of times the clients who are in intimate partner relationships, they don't know day in and day out what's going to happen. They don't know maybe exactly when they're going to leave. And so they're trying to strategize for that day. Maybe they have a safety plan in place that this is going to be the day and they're attempting to secure money on the side or hide money. But ideally you just don't know what it's going to cost you until that time arises. And I don't, I don't know if you can always prepare for that. It's it's just an everyday living situation. Um, where your money has been accounted for. But I will tell you this, this one that um, I, I don't think people think about. Um, and I was asking for this uh, local organization who they often, it's like a grocery store, and they donate gift cards. And I reached out to them about gift cards. You know, most of the time people do. But I gave them a very different perspective. And I said, I need you to understand the significance and importance of gift cards for survivors. Gift cards are not tracked. And so while there's a safety plan in place and they need to be get, begin to gather things or put things aside, we can use gift cards to be able to move them and gather items that they need versus them having to go into a shared bank account or a bank account that's being controlled or watched. And so they're, they're just, that's the cause, like those things that nobody accounts for.
2: That's very helpful information, darling. Yeah,
1: well, I mean, you know, those that do harm, abusers, they intertwine their world so deeply into the survivors and friends, if there are any left. Um, depends on how isolated a survivor is. They intertwine. So, you know, if there's the the rent, the lease might be in that batter's name. The, You know, you might have, if you've got children together, then you're looking at not just divorce but years of having to deal with the Ongoing manipulation, the children in the middle, a lot of survivors talk about part of leaving. I think most will say they left. Those with children will say they finally left because of the children. They started to really see the impact. On the other hand, you have just as many who stay because of the children. Because without them there, who's going to protect the children? So even if mom moves to the periphery, the children in most every state that I'm familiar with, you know, a huge percentage— you know, I don't want to give an exact number, but the vast majority get equal timeshare with their children and visitation. So really, we kind of talk about in this country, uh, protection and protection of children. And I do think we want that as a society. I I want to condone that. But at the same time, we talk about protection of children, but we put them right back into the same exposure. Because guess what, that partner, the ex-partner is now going to have a new partner The kids are going to see the treatment of the new partner, the new spouse, whatever that looks like. Uh, And so we're really not. So survivors are in no-win situations, financially, emotionally, mentally, with their children. The barriers are just feel insurmountable on one hand. On the other hand, once you start to break that, the freedom— you know, like survivors will go, oh, my gosh, I haven't slept three nights in a row for 10 years, right, uh, that might come to shelter. And we're much bigger than shelter. I mean, the vast majority we do has nothing to do with shelter. Um, but just the, you can't think straight. It's hard to function. It's hard to have a good sense of presence. And yet their kids, they get the kids up every day. And they're off to school. They still find a way to make lunches or get to school. Um, the things they have to do as a parent if they only knew their own resiliency and strength. But once they've broken that power, it still takes a while to rebuild, even once you've broken power. And that, again, doesn't keep the batterer from stopping, especially in the courts. Man, that can go on for years. It's just, I think the most expensive divorce I've heard of is a, for us locally was about $150,000 just for a divorce. That did not include the other party's fees. So you're looking at $300,000 divorce you know, which is not normal. I'm not saying that's normal by any means, but I don't, 20,000 is pretty darn normal for a divorce or separation or legal things that have to take place. So,
2: so darling, you've spoken to me about how Kentucky is doing as far as the state of Kentucky in serving its communities and the individuals who are affected by domestic violence and abuse. What can you tell our audience about that?
1: Well, you know, Kentucky gets a bad rap. I think across the state, you know, like every time I travel somewhere, I'm going. No, I do have shoes. You know, we <laughs> we have we, we, we don't all <laughs> we run around okay. barefoot. Although I honestly would prefer to be prefer <laughs> to be barefoot. Um, We kind of get a bad rap, but I will say the leadership in Kentucky for the last 40 years, uh, every time I travel, and I get to travel a lot in my work and um, do a lot of consulting, I really have to say I'm proud. People go, that's happening in Kentucky? That's happening in Kentucky? So I mean, Kentucky was the first state, I mean, we were the chosen state by the federal government to do enforcement of protective orders across state lines. So all the states in, in the nation really had protective order cover sheets just like Kentucky's back in the day, right? So that there could be interstate enforcement across the country, um, which still exists today um, under the VAWA Act. You know, we were the first to mandate law enforcement. I mean, our, our police have been mandated to have training for about 35 years now. Um, So it's not a choice. And because of that, because, you know, I've been around a long time. So when I first trained police when I was a baby in this work, and now I just trained a big group of them the other day, it is day and night what we see with law enforcement. Um, And not to say, you know, not anything critical from 30 years ago. It was just a different world, a different understanding about IPV. But today's officers are different. You know, Kentucky was... You know, had protective orders early amendment and protective orders. Um, I mean, I don't know. They've just done it. We had, we created Vine, which is done in most. Um, that was born out of Louisville because a survivor was murdered by her boyfriend who was let out of jail and nobody let her or her family know so on his birthday on her birthday he took her life and so mary byron's life is memory you know memory goes through vine which i think is in almost every state in the nation now so kentucky's done some really great legislation and creative ways to support survivors and all of our shelters are in legislation so um that's a huge deal because if you're legislated, that means the state has to help provide funding. And that's not true in all states. So,
2: And Tanisha, <laughs> she's like shaking her head. She's shaking her head. <laughs> but you've stood on the steps of the Michigan State Capitol recently. And what do you have to add about the way that Michigan goes about serving its citizens in this way?
0: That we're 30, 40 years behind. I'm sorry. Man, it almost brings tears to my eyes to hear you talk about your state and their support and the things, the initiatives, like being proactive because something happened. They said, we got to do something about it. It is gut-wrenching every time I have to hear a client say, what do I have to do? Do I have to be shot, killed, murdered before they will do anything? When I have a client who has one that was stabbed over 20 sometimes left for dead, and here we are four years later, and he was released on a personal recognizance bond this entire four years. And I have other clients who literally, I mean, I don't know how the laws work here, but it takes three offenses for it to become a felony for us. But one time for animal, the basic human right, human life is just not important when it comes to domestic violence. In my opinion, in our state, I've had to stand on the Capitol way too many times to fight against bills that favored the perpetrator and the world being worried about rehabilitation. While I am all about rehabilitation, I say, what about the survivor? When I look at the bills that have passed through our legislation and more have been perpetrator, offender, driven, and I see bills that did not make it to the governor's desk that were survivor-centered, Is, is sad, is, is frustrating. Um, and when I think about when I go to court with my clients, how I have to, when you have to say to your clients and prepare them to reimagine justice because justice is not, they're not going to see justice through the system. And I have to prepare them for that. I have to prepare them to understand why they may have come to arrest your abuser tonight, but he will be out by midnight. That should not be conversations that I have to have. Even having a 50-50 state, very much like you all are, when I have legislators fighting against us survivor center bills because they're too worried about how it would affect their own
2: lives. Is this why you've said that personally you said being a victim is hard but sometimes being a survivor is even harder? Yeah
0: Um sometimes even when you're surviving you're sharing your story especially because we know I mean just based on what's reported your hearing or statistics is, is more women, right? And that's, and, I mean, statistics can always be skewed. We know there are a lot of men that are abused as well, but that's just not reported. So I feel like in our state, when we come and we have a Senate hearing, there's always a woman's face that's present speaking about intimate partner violence. I am a survivor. And they look at you, one, they're sizing you up, right? Because they hear this ideal of what you should look like. And you wouldn't dare be sitting here at a Senate hearing today if you were so traumatized. How are you here to, you can't be that traumatized. You're here to a Senate hearing. You're put together. You're well to do. And you're being re-victimized again by legislation because they're going to bark because they don't, they don't want these to be enacted because maybe they had a bad divorce. Maybe they abuse, maybe, you know, it's just all these different things, but I'm, I'm just listening to you and we're behind
1: and we have no excuse. We have no excuse. Now I'm going to say, I'm really proud of Kentucky, but that doesn't mean we don't have a long way to go.
3: <laughs> I think and and there's so day, many yeah. cool
1: things Kentucky has done along the way. And they, and there is a lot of proactivity. You know, we have legislation that's protected survivors so mm-hmm. they don't have to leave their homes. They get to keep their homes. You know, they have to work with landlo- landlord protections, um, things like that. Animal protections. Now we have, um, in the context of intimate partner mm-hmm. violence. Um, but it's an ever going process. Um, Along the way. And there's so many challenges because states seem to follow suit with other states sometimes about certain things. And, you know, I'm really worried about current decisions like the Rahimi decision out of Texas. And and that um, was Mm -hmm. at the Fifth Circuit that made that decision. At the same time in Kentucky, our, our Eastern District, you know, had a very similar finding about weapons and being able to remove weapons from batterers and we did just background checks deal. and ordering <laughs> them so we're all on pins and needles um, trying to figure out because it's a slippery slope uh if if our government goes in that direction i i'm trying to after this many years fathom what a world looks like and in my challenge to those that are legislate that have the authority to legislate let's put that You know, my challenge is is I, I can't walk, to my knowledge, I don't think I can walk into any capital in this country and not go through a security system so that our legislators are safe. And honestly, I want my legislators to be safe. I absolutely do. But I also want survivors to be safe. And why don't survivors, why can we not afford survivors the same right to those protections? If you have a right to be protected and you should, you should not have to go to work and be worried about who might do. But in in intimate partner violence, we know who the problem is. We know what the face is. You know, you might not know it if you're a public figure, but let me tell you, we do. And so, you know, I do think we have a lot more voice to bring, you know, and this is a bigger issue. It's a it's it's a human right issue, and you know, we've got a lot of growth left. In Kentucky and nationally, yeah. I just think if we're going to afford rights and talk about constitutional rights to safety and protection, then we should afford all people those same rights. So, yeah. when we get there, um, I hope I hope I'm alive to see it. But yes.
0: yeah. I hope I'm alive just to see to get to where you all are. Like <laughs> you don't even realize, like I, you know, like you said, we still have a long way to go and a lot of education when it comes to intimate partner violence across the board but just, I mean, bare bones, just the basic things that y'all have done is huge. It's, is, man, like, oh, it warms my heart, though, to know that, that you're out here doing the work, you're educating, and they're listening, because that's, that's half the battle, right? Just listening and not just seeing it as, like, somebody's always crying about this. is. It's literally like, who better than to get it from than the experts? And I do
1: think the vast majority are listening. I really do. I think there's other people that you just can't you just can't take the word no. Mm-hmm. And sometimes I think we just exhaust <laughs> certain officials or whatever. We just wear mm-hmm. them down, which could be a good thing, right? Yeah, but yeah. and it takes a while. And and so I guess in in the the years that I've done this work, I'm probably a way more patient now in understanding that we are going to get there. We are going to continue to push and, but we have a long way to go. There are grave inequities, the underserved population, marginalized communities. Um, but you know, Kentucky protected marginalized communities and our protective orders. Uh, and in our, uh, when we finally got dating violence in the state of Kentucky and and that protective order, the IPOs, interpersonal protective orders, um, So we were able to protect those, but they're still disproportionate uh, against with women of color in this country, disproportionate removal of their children. So you want to talk about barriers, you know, we, we have to look at the rates by which uh, women of color lose their children because they're victims of intimate partner, not because they've done anything wrong. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the Nicholson case out of New York is probably 30 years old now, and we're still struggling with the exact same inequity that, that she fought against in the in the state of New York and won against the state. So um, so we have to recognize that, those of us mm-hmm. in this work. And I think our community is beginning to see it. I do believe that. I do believe yeah. that we're just going to keep, have yeah. to talk about um, the bias in our systems and how it disproportionately harms brown women.
2: Well, we're coming to the end of this wonderful hour together, and I will just, tell you personally, thank you for the inspiration and the courage and the bravery to talk about the subject with our listeners today. Where can we find out more about your organizations? And then I have one last question to ask
1: you. The best way to find us is Greenhouse17, which is uh, Greenhouse17.org, Greenhouse17.org. Everything you need to know. We run Cottage Industries. We're the only domestic violence program that I know of in the nation that actually pays stipends for people to live there, so you can earn income so that you don't have to depend on your former partner to pick up formula or things like that. Uh, we provide most of that stuff anyway. But if you have special needs for you and your family, you have the capacity to do that with our industries and farm. We make products that people anywhere in the world who are listening are happy to buy. And survivors make those products. They create them, they make them, they help market them, they package them. Like it's beautiful, they name them. It's it's really cool. In uh, the I will say this really quickly. I, The beautiful thing about when you create programming with victims' voices leading the way, not advocates, victims' voices leading the way, um, what you also then create is an avenue and source of pride. So our whole goal at greenhouse 17 wasn't you're not coming to a shelter nothing to be ashamed of. We want you to be proud to be there and most of our survivors that come there tell everybody I lived at greenhouse 17 I did that I worked out in the farm I helped make products and because you're then become a part of something bigger than yourself like you have, put yourself out there. And part of that reward has been the sense of purpose and that I do have a right to dignity. And it's much more than just hiding people away and tucking them away as if they've committed the crimes. We need to quit doing that. We need to have safe shelters, don't get me wrong, but we need to quit hiding survivors away as if they don't exist because until the community sees their resilience and their beauty and their capacity, then we don't change it. We're hiding it, right? So We just have to rethink and reimagine how this world can look for survivors. Um, For Voices of Color, we are
0: uh, Um, www.voicesofcolor.org. Most of the people find us on Facebook, Voices of Color. We get a lot of responses through social media, which I can appreciate, even though I get tired of social media. Um, But, yes, you can find us, again, voicesofcolor.org and also on Facebook, primarily.
2: One of the things, Tanisha, as we kind of bring this show sadly to a close because I think I could sit here and talk with you all forever, but you added at the end of your segment of the Remarkable Woman TV show, which by the way is on YouTube for free viewing, that one of the things you wanted everyone to know is that there is love after being a victim, Um, What can you tell us about your journey? And then, Darlene, I'd like to close with you on what you feel or what you've experienced from some of your survivors as well.
0: Because uh, what I do know is that when you're in a relationship with someone you love and then they abuse you, either you repeat that cycle again with someone that does the same thing, or you make the decision that to avoid this, to never, ever have this happen to me again. I'm not going to date. I'm not going to marry. I'm just going to be out here living my life. And you often will see either or. And when you give yourself a chance, and and I like to say that healing is an active word. I used to feel that I was healed until I learned years and years later that I still something would come back up. So healing is an active word and will be with me for the rest of my life. But my trauma doesn't have to be me, but it will be with me. So in my healing process and taking time, it was critical that I actually took time to learn who Tanisha Ashakor was again. Because I had been told who I was for so long. Um, and then I had someone to come along that wanted, that saw through me, even though I thought I was living my best life again, they wiggled their little self into my life and still saw greater in me than what I was already seeing. And I realized that where I thought I was mentally, I was not because I, this person was speaking so much life into me and I couldn't fathom what this person was saying to me, what they were seeing. And through that, we gained a relationship. Now he is my husband and he has wanted nothing but the best for me. And what I have told everyone is I found someone who fights for me, not fights me. And I am grateful that I found love again because in that, It hasn't always been pretty, right? Because he has pressed me to be the best me. He has made me travel and get through some ugly parts of me that I just wanted to suppress. I didn't want to deal with it. And I probably felt I could have went through life without discovering any of it. But he pressed me and I would not be the better version of me but for him. And so... I'm, I'm thankful for this, the new love. I'm thankful for my husband. And that I, that, and I, I want others to feel just because one person hurts you, that's not everyone. That's not everybody. There are loving people out here in this world despite
1: all that's going on in our world. There is love. And there's, and it really is more good than bad. It's just yes. we see the bad so much all the time, right? <laughs> yes. So there are so many others that don't fit in that. You know, I think what I would probably, not much you can add to that because it's a risk, right? And so what I have a tendency when I'm meeting with survivors who are really scared to date or whatever, or they do repeat, you know, sometimes you use you use a new relationship to get you out of the bad ones so that you're safe mm. again. And then that doesn't turn out very safe either, right? Or you you know, like I had one survivor that did background checks on everybody for the first 10 years after she left. Like she was so worried as if a background check is going to tell you whether or not they'll do you harm. So what I always say to survivors is really at the end of the day, you have to trust you. Yes. Right. You don't know. Batters, those that do harm, manipulate. They're going to be charming. They are going and it's going to be hard for you to trust that Mm -hmm. and you need to trust you. Until it goes long enough that you realize that this really is good. It is not the same Mm -hmm. as it was before. Uh, But if it does start to show signs or those things now, you have to trust you to Mm -hmm. decide you are worth more than to do this again. Yeah. You can do it. And so, but the more knowledge they have, the more understanding yeah. they have. And, you know, we're not always good about teaching survivors about their partners. And so we're always busy teaching mm-hmm. them about themselves. But you need to be taught. We need to understand, too, how people act and are yeah. that, yeah. so that it no longer is normal for some folks. So I just go back to trust you. Trust you at the end of the day that you have value and worth and you do not have to do this. Mm-hmm. And if you are afraid... And you're worried about what will happen to you you are not alone there truly is a network of, of organizations and groups willing to help and find one that works for you yes
2: well thank you both Tanisha Ashakor and Darlene Thomas for being with us here today on the Ricochet Effect thank
1: you thank you
0: yeah
1: it's an honor mm-hmm.
0: Having conversation with no moderation. Love to the communities, the ricochet effect. Having conversation with no moderation.
3: Well, we've come to the close of a, another amazing podcast. I'd like to thank our listeners. I'd like to thank our guest. And as we say here at WKY, we can't do it without our community. And just keep in mind that DEIB is the DNA of humanity. The vision of Project Ricochet is to find practical solutions that assist minority youth who are prone to antisocial behaviors while discovering positive and productive lifestyle alternatives. An overarching goal of Project Ricochet is to work and communicate in genuine ways with existing organizations and groups which have a similar focus as we do. Our programming is distinctive because it provides development opportunities for community and economic empowerment.
0: It's the Ricochet Effect. Ricochet Effect. It's the Ricochet Effect. Ricochet Effect. effect.